Hi, everyone. I'm Raj Kumar, president and editor-in-chief of DevX. This week, we'll be breaking down the big headlines in global development and bringing in some top experts to help us do it. If you want to follow along with the stories we're talking about, check out devx.com and subscribe to our daily newsletter, The Newswire. There's a link in the description. Follow us along on Twitter, and you can see many of the stories we're talking about today. And we'd love to hear what you think. This is This Week in Global Development. I want to welcome uh, my colleague, Colin Winch, is with us this week. Uh, hey, Colin. Hey, Raj. How are you doing? Good to hear from you. Do, doing great. Glad, glad to be with you. Colin is a senior global reporter here at DevX, based up in New York, covering all things UN and beyond. And uh, once again, we have a returning guest in uh, Dr. Jen Cates. Hey, Jen. Hey, good to be here. Good to be back. Jen is, of course, um, a senior director over at KFF, uh, where she, uh, I guess you're senior vice president there, and you're the director for global health at HIV, and you're kind of our go-to for all things global health and HIV policy. Um, and this is a great week to have you on, Jen, because there's so much going on in your world, and maybe we can just begin there. Um, what is happening at PEPFAR? <laughs> this has been an evolving story, maybe not a good one, uh, probably from your perspective, certainly not a good one. What's going on? What should, what should people listening in and, and DevX readers know? Yes, the, good question, Raj. There is a lot going on with PEPFAR. So as uh, people may know, PEPFAR is the U.S. Global AIDS Program. It's been around for about 20 years, uh, created by George W. Bush. And one of the sort of its hallmarks is that it has had incredibly strong bipartisan support since it was created and over the, over the years. Um, and, uh, and that support from just really all corners, um, you know, uh, groups that don't usually come together, has allowed it to kind of weather lots of storms and sort of stay sort of outside the political fray that might occur in Washington and allowed it to kind of do this great work. And, and the results are pretty striking. Um, it's estimated to have saved over 25 million lives. And there's lots of evidence of its impact. Uh, just to underscore that for everybody, Jen, I think it was last year you were probably there, the USGLC dinner, the annual gala that they have. Um, was it December yeah, of last year? Yeah, I'm trying to yeah. remember now. But it, th this, it was all about the 20th anniversary of PEPFAR. And, you know, you saw a room that's probably more filled with people from the left side of the spectrum than the right stand up and clap for both President George W. Bush, former President Bush, and uh, Mitch uh, Senator Mitch McConnell, and it was, you know, a truly bipartisan moment, which is very rare in this town these days. It, it's so rare. And, and as I said, it's just been one of these things that has, has really stood out um, and made this program, you know, allowed this program to have the runway it's needed to save so many lives. Well, unfortunately, that, that ramp may have ended, um, or at least temporarily, although I think there's a big question about if that, if it could ever be um, put back on track. But essentially, the larger politics of the day around abortion um, and also just sort of the caustic uh, partisan bickering have taken over. And um, a subset of members in the House who are anti-abortion and also, um, you know, just just pushing a broader agenda, not not so specific to PEPFAR, have ba basically stalled the reauthorization process. PEPFAR is due to, was due to be reauthorized, and, uh, and, and, and that's been sort of a pro forma thing that's happened every five years, and it just didn't happen now because there's been a, a lot of this partisan uh, difference, and I'm happy to go into a lot more detail. But... Let's go into some of the detail because there's this kind of confusing distinction, yep. right, between authorization and appropriation, the, the funding for PEPFAR, and so people who, you know, 
feel like, well, maybe this isn't that big of a deal or saying, hey, the money is still there. This doesn't actually affect PEPFAR's funding. There is another wrinkle we can get into in a minute that is affecting their current funding. But but just explain the distinction and why does authorization even matter? Right. So in, in Washington, and, and this is just sort of, it, it was inside baseball, but now it's coming out into the open. There, there's, there's two different kinds of, broadly speaking, legislation that Congress enacts. One is authorizing legislation, which creates programs and it provides guidance to agencies and it has oversight. Um, and it can authorize or specify to the other kind of funding, appropriators, uh, how much money they might, the authorizers might want to see. But it basically is creating programs and policies. It's not funding them. It's the appropriators, the appropriation legislation that every year has to fund programs. And so even if something is authorized in law, it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to get funded. And if it's not authorized or reauthorized, I should say, it really depends on what the language and the legislation says about whether it can still be funded. The good news here is that PEPFAR is a permanent part of U.S. law. There's nothing in its authorizing legislation that created it that ends it. There are some things that ended, but not the program. And so as long as Congress continues to fund it, through appropriations every year, it continues. Uh, there's an open question about whether this sort of partisan um, challenge that's that's come up for PEPFAR is going to spill at all into the funding process through appropriations, but so far there hasn't been evidence of that. And there's an important wrinkle here when it comes to the global fund. And I forget, do you still sit on the board of the global fund? I do. I am the alternate board member on, uh, for one of the board seats on the global fund. And there, there is. A- so you know this institution yeah. very well. Yes. Um, and, and I guess I'm curious, you know, we talked about it in the story we published this week. But but what is the implication? Obviously, we think about PEPFAR when we think of this reauthorization issue. But but as we reported, maybe there's a connection to to the global fund and what it could mean for the Global Fund's next replenishment. Correct. So um, even though the Global Fund is an independent, multilateral uh, institution, it wasn't created by the U.S. or any single donor, although the U.S. is its largest donor, U.S. government. Um, When PEPFAR was created through its authorizing legislation, the uh, U.S. participation in the Global Fund was included in terms of Congress saying, hey, when when we participate and, and give money to this entity, here are some criteria we want to put in place. And uh, th- these are the requirements. So we're going to, when appropriate when money is provided and appropriated. Here's what has to happen. One of those requirements is a very important one, which has basically said the U.S. can only uh, provide up to a third of funding to the global fund from all sources. That's been really important because it's done two things. One is I think it's sent it, it's provided Congress with some comfort. The U.S. isn't going to be the all, the funder for all of this that this important work. It, others have to step up. And it's also been incredibly important for leverage. I've been at these meetings, as you say, I'm on the board. I've been there when the U.S. government can look at all the other donors and say, hey, if you don't provide more, we're going to lose money. We're going to have to leave money on the table because our Congress says, by law, we can't put any more in until you do. If that requirement is now gone. And so it's a little hard for the U.S. to sort of say, hey, we're we're bound by this requirement. And this is our leverage when that doesn't exist anymore. And how big? do you think the implication is really like do you think you know this ultimately we've got another story we'll get into later in the conversation with column about a u.n agency uh where the trump administration stopped funding it other governments stepped in and, and did fund it is that what might happen with the global so fund i don't my sense at this point is it's not going to reduce the u.s spending on the global funds um and and also if congress is really serious about wanting to include this requirement what it could do when it does an appropriation for the global fund is put this requirement in that bill for that one year 
it's a little tricky, but th that's a way to do it. But I don't think this is going to put pressure on the really on the U.S. amount, although, you know, I, who knows? I think, though, it, it really reduces the leverage the U.S. has to get others to step up to the to the table. And that's been so critical. So I, I think it at a time when um, other donors are, you know, the U.S. provides the most and other donors are not just necessarily providing that much more than they have in the past. Any leverage has been seen as important. Um, and it's certainly been one that's made those in Congress who are concerned about the budget more comfortable to know that there's been this this sort of ceiling in a sense. Um, so I think it has more implications for how the U.S. interacts with other donors. Yeah, and it does, you know, just begins to show, as you're saying, the, poli the political challenges here in D.C., ripple that they can have. There's so many ripple uh, All effects. over the world. Uh, every, exactly. Right? So on the pep, going to PEPFAR on that note, exactly. I can say a thousand times PEPFAR still exists, PEPFAR still continues, PEPFAR still has money. But if I'm sitting in a country and I'm the recipient of PEPFAR support because I'm getting antiretrovirals, that night might not make me feel, I still might hear, wait, the U.S. Congress doesn't support this program and think it's over. And that has ripple effects too. Sure. And there's, I mean, that's not just like an idle fear. There's uh, Washington Post reporting from this week about this billion dollars in PEPFAR funding that's been held up. Maybe you can you can tell listeners a little bit more about that. Yeah, I actually think that's an even more serious, more immediate issue that's been a little bit below the radar, but but the Post did a good story on it, which is separate from this sort of bigger you know reauthorization battle, which is about you know the program, uh, the creation of the program. Um, there's this other thing that happens: Congress appropriates money, as I said, every year. And then part of the process is these, the State Department and USAID have to notify Congress before they actually send that money to countries. It's a pretty standard process. It happens every year. They send up what are called congressional notifications. The relevant congressional committees look at them. They can ask some questions. Sometimes there's some back and forth. What has happened now, at least reportedly, is they are holding up those notifications for the same ideological reasons that have stalled reauthorization. Well, why is that significant? That's significant because that's about funding that has already been appropriated, that's supposed to go into the field now, and is actually holding up planning and potentially soon programming at the field level. So to me, that has a much higher stake. And it's also, again, just like the reauthorization battle, it's a bit of a departure from the past to, to sort of bring these battles into these congressional notifications. Yeah, and it sort of, in some ways, feels like it came out of nowhere, right? Uh, uh, maybe, maybe there was complacency on the part of the global health community. I don't know, uh, but it did feel like, wow, where where did these complaints come from? I remember when the first letter hit, uh, and it was starting to work its way through the ecosystem here in DC. People were saying, "What is this?" and Who's behind it? You know, I, I guess it kind of connects in some ways. I want to bring you, Colin, into the conversation to another story we published by a, a senior reporter, DevX Jenny Ravello, about kind of the pandemic response and where the world is on preparing for the next pandemic. There was a report that we said we are, quote, on fragile ground, um, that we're, we're really just kind of far behind in all the things we were meant to, to do to get, to get back into a place of being prepared for the next pandemic, all the things we talked about during the COVID-19 pandemic. So, Colin, I, I don't know if you saw that story, if you have any sense of it. It seems to me connected in a lot of ways to reporting you've been doing about significant mistrust between the global north and the global south that's getting worse. In general, there, you know, I mean, this has been going on for three or four years, and it's been getting worse and worse, this sort of deepening sense of alienation between the global north and the global south, 
and it derives from, um, you know, it really sort of picked up pace during the pandemic, a feeling that, um, you know, that, that uh, vaccines were not making their way into, um, into the global south, that, um, that, you know, basically the, the north sort of forgot about them and didn't care about their people. And so that has kind of resonated and, and sort of set the tone for, you know, what followed from that was the sort of deepening financial crisis, which, you know, uh, sort of compounded a lot of the initial frustration over the pandemic. And you saw, you know, um, countries in the North able to use um, various vehicles to, um, to weather the financial storm and, um, you know, the developing South not having the the financial resources to do it and not getting enough support from the North. So, you know, the last couple of, you know, major UN meetings, the UN General Assembly meetings have been very, very, um, very, very tough. Um, you've, you've had sort of these battles over whether the UN should be focusing on security issues like Ukraine or whether there should be focusing on issues of global health, uh, basic services, and, uh, and and sort of debt relief and all these issues in the South. So um, so the the, the the mood is not is not great. Yeah, Jen, you led a lot of KFF's work on COVID nineteen, and I guess maybe my question is: Have we learned a lesson? Like, are are we seeing from everything we talked about during the pandemic? The next time, are we seeing real progress? Uh, the report that that we that we wrote about this week in, in DevX was suggesting there are some areas of progress but that for the most part, we are way off track from where we ought to be. What, what's your own take about how the pandemic preparedness issue is evolving? Yeah, so you're talking about the Global Preparedness Monitoring Board report, which is an independent body that has been putting out these important reports since pre-COVID, I should say. Um, and I, I, you know, I think we should be afraid. I read the report uh, and I agree with its take. I, I, look, uh, there, we are not in the same um, discussion that the global community isn't in the same place in terms of the dialogue and some of the maybe baby or uh, toddler or maybe even preteen steps that are being taken. But I think the bigger sort of realigning the, you know, the, the, the structures and, and getting at some of the fundamental issues, we're not there yet. Um, if there is a pandemic next year, um, I fear that some of the same big challenges that this report identifies are going to happen. Uh, the global south will be left out. It's true that there are steps to try to f fix that, but they're not fast enough per se, and there's still a lot of challenges. This report also cites another sort of threat out there that's that's gotten worse because of COVID, which is just misinformation and disinformation that um, it, it really hard to tackle. So there's the literal challenges and the need for realignment, um, and then these bigger forces that are beyond the control really of, of any one actor in the global community. So I, I guess I would give us, um, you know, we're making some steps, but we're, we're not at a place where we should all be comfortable that this could be tackled if there's another pandemic. Sure. And the report does talk about this issue of trust as a key one, because I mean, if you think about what happened in the last pandemic, there was a sense that, hey, the world's going to come together. We're going to create COVAX. We are going to PPE and you know, make donations and we're going to send healthcare workers around the world and we're going to do things as kind of a global community in solidarity. And a lot of that obviously ends up falling apart. And, you know, what the report I think is suggesting is, look, if, if we don't have a sense of trust, how are you going to get cooperation? It connects back to the PEPFAR discussion, because if countries are feeling like they can't trust the U.S. on PEPFAR, where they where that's been sort of the, you know, one of the places that everyone could look and say, this is such a good thing, that just contributes to that 
that erosion. Yeah, that, that's absolutely right. And, and well, we know what to do. And now there's a, a real disconnect between the global health experts who say, hey, this is the way to go. And the people who are deciding on policy and funding. And that you know, wasn't always the case. Certainly with PEPFAR, there was a real alignment between the two. There was a sense that the global that you know, technical expertise is at the center of the policy and of the funding. Uh, and here we're saying, well, maybe not. <laughs> maybe other factors are, are actually going to be stronger, uh, including, you know, how things play out in the crazy U.S. House of Representatives. Yes. I mean, the, the politics, it's not that politics have never been there. It's just that the politics, the, the sort of political agreements uh, among many uh, actors and, and different stakeholders was, was enough to kind of keep the momentum going forward. Are you interested in the intersection of business and social impact? Do you want to know how corporate sustainability, ESG, impact investing, and more can contribute to development finance? My name is Adva Saldinger. I'm a senior reporter at DevEx, and I've been reporting on these issues for nearly a decade. I'm the author of DevEx Invested, our free weekly newsletter dedicated to development finance. Every Tuesday, we explore how companies, investors, and market mechanisms are reshaping the world of development finance. Visit devx.com newsletters and join us on Tuesdays. When there is another pandemic and when we think about, you know, distributing uh, manufacturing of vaccines and other medicines around, especially sub-Saharan Africa, uh, the, what are the hurdles to doing that? And one of the big ones that came up in a conversation uh, that DevEx covered in Europe is the idea that, you know, regulations between African countries are not harmonized. There are trade barriers. And essentially, Peter Sands, who you know leads the Global Fund, was asked, or what, what is the big hurdle? And said, well, it's regulations. Uh, I, I wonder if you have a take on that issue and, and what your thought was on the story that we published. As, as on the good, on the positive, I think there's a discussion happening right now. This is kind of what I was getting to the dialogue has shifted that really recognizes that manufacturing can't just sit where it's been sitting. That has been part of the problem. And so for the first time, I think there's a, you know, there's a real growing uh, sense that we have to shift this around. There, there, there have to be regional hubs and other ways to do this. Um, and Africa wants that for sure. Um, that's easier said than done. And I think the article did a really good job of covering what's just a tough issue. There are there's regulatory hurdles. It, it, the article also mentions there's infrastructure and political challenges, but I think the regulatory ones are really big and are not easy to solve. Um, there's goodwill to try to uh, tackle those, but it's not like it's an overnight fix. And I think one of the issues that's coming up as well is, you know, this isn't about necessarily creating uh, 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 manufacturing capacity in every country in, in Africa, for, for example. It's where, how do you strategically do that? How do you link the countries in terms of their regulatory framework, their shared um, goals at times of crisis? And, and that's, that's, you know, that's a big task. Um, and I, I'm certainly, I don't know what the answers are, but I know that having PEPFAR and the Global Fund and many others kind of focused on this with the AU and the Africa CDC is, is what needs to happen. I just had a question. I mean, the African Union, they're setting up this African Medicines Agency, which is supposed to sort of centralize the, the you know, regulations across Africa. I mean, do you have any sense that that offers much promise of kind of putting a dent in this problem? I mean, I think that's my sense is that is, I mean, that's needed. And that's the right sort of step that has to be taken. I just think it's a, it's, it's a long process and it's going to be, it's not a short term solution. 
and uh, a challenge. So that gets back to sort of, let's say, this anxiety that we might all feel of, okay, if there's another pandemic in the next year, two years, or even five years, we're not going to be there yet. So I think that's the challenge here. It's not that that it's not the right, one of the right pathways. It's just, that's not a short term fix. Right. It seems like if you have a strong Africa CDC, and which obviously has made tremendous strides, you know, over the past several years, a strong medicine agency, and you get countries, 55 diverse countries, not all of whom agree on things to say, you know, we will in some ways cede our national regulatory authority to this unified agency and accept, you know, pre-qualification of medicines. If you can get there, that's probably the best path forward, but it could take a long time. Yeah. And the capacity of these agencies, even just the human capacity, right? Having the right uh, people yeah. in place to to make these decisions is it's a significant thing. It's going to take years. Yeah, and I think you know the goal, the the donors who are are involved in this have to recognize you know asking fifty five countries to come to these agreements. You know the U S. is not going to do that same kind of agreement with a single other country. So it's not so. It's you know it's it's a complicated web of of challenges here. Yeah, and even if you get you know manufacturing, um, let's say in a country like Rwanda, does that mean when there is a crisis that Rwanda will automatically provide its medicines kind of pro rata to every other country uh, in sub-Saharan Africa, or will they give more to their allies than to their enemies, you know? And so the same issues that we saw with vaccine nationalism playing out between the global North and global South could, could end up playing out depending on how this is organized and arranged and, and, and what sort of agreements are put in place in advance. Exactly. That, that is, that is the challenge. And, you know, at the end of the day, when there's a crisis, Political leaders are going to feel like they are, you know, most responsible to their citizens and what they need to do for their citizens, and that's going to be a challenge that I don't think will ever be fully solved. Yeah, uh, and thinking about these kinds of institutional challenges, um, Colm, I'd love to bring you into the discussion around the big story that you published this week about uh, a UN agency that is very much in the news now, given the crisis in Israel and Gaza, and um, that is the UN region UNRWA, which um, you know, has a share of critics, as you report, and then other leaders in the space who say, look, this is the agency we need, and it's going to be the agency that, that survives this crisis and helps to rebuild in Gaza. What, what did your story find? What are some of the key takeaways? Well, I mean, the key takeaway is, is, is sort of trying to focus on the idea of what sort of happens the day after Israel pulls up, pulls its tanks out of Gaza um, and, you know, if it achieves its intention of completely destroying Hamas or at least undermining its ability to govern, you know, what is there? Is there a massive vacuum in Gaza? Is there anybody to deliver uh, food, medicine, supplies? And so this is an area where UNRWA, uh, which has had a very long and difficult relationship with the Israeli government, um, is an organization that has the ability to provide basic services. It runs um, the schools in uh, Gaza. It uh, provides medical assistance. It builds um, facilities. It has 13,000 Palestinian workers. And so the focus is very much on what is going to be their role. Those yeah. 13,000 Palestinian workers, it's the largest employer in Gaza, right? I read it in your yeah. piece. Yeah, by far the largest employer. And it's also 
at the moment, it's it's you know facing all the struggles that everybody else is in Gaza. There, um, you know, as I was reporting this story, you know, one day I would have you know the the death toll for UNRWA members would be you know in the mid 30s. The next day I'd have to update it into the 40s and then to the 50s. Now it's in the upper 60s, possibly past. 70 deaths, and those are primarily um, school teachers. Uh, there's a gynecologist, psychologist, and engineer. Um, so they're in, you know, they're facing their own trauma within, but they're also trying to scope out what future role they might have. And there's another in your story that was kind of eye popping that some 600,000 Gazans are living inside UNRWA shelters. Uh, that number has has actually increased. It's I think as of last night was about six hundred and ninety thousand. So Israeli has you know earlier on in the conflict re- demanded the evacuation of Gazans in northern Gaza, uh, which is you know about a million people to go into the south. Um, they have no place you know to you know m- many of them have no place to go, and so um, they tend to congregate around um, around these. 150 or so uh, facilities that UNRWA runs in the country. And so um, most of them have three times the capacity of people in them, but this is the only place they're not, they're not entirely safe, but they're probably the safest places you can go to in Gaza. And so they're playing the role of trying to tend to these people, but they are also uh, running out of food, uh, water, uh, you know, Israel has not allowed fuel into the country because of concerns that Hamas would use it to um, to run its kind of war machine. Um, and, uh, and they have drawn attention to the fact that uh, Hamas has actually stored quite a bit of fuel in the country, but it's primarily using it for its military purposes and not for humanitarian ones. And you talk a bit about this in the piece, but what do the critics of UNRWA say? Because it sounds like this is an agency that has had its share of critics for a long time, and even among you know some of the leading candidates to be the next president of the United States on the Republican side, uh, what what is their argument? Well, I mean, basically, you know, I mean, UNRWA is not only in Gaza; it's in the West Bank. It uh, it, it 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 cares for refugees in Jordan, in Syria, in Lebanon. It is overseeing a population of some five million people. First off, Israel feels that this categorization of these Palestinians as refugees is unfair, that um, that the original refugees who left Israel in the 1940s was a, a group of 700,000 people. Um, their descendants have expanded to a population of 5 million. Uh, Israel feels that all of these, many of these people should be integrated into Jordanian, Syrian, Lebanese society, and that uh, they shouldn't be considered um, refugees in Gaza because there's a functioning government and so on. So there's there's been a lot of uh, resentment to this notion that uh, UNRWA perpetuates this notion of a uh, of, a, of, a, of a refugee population that is going to continue on into forever, right? And so in addition to that, uh, most of the employees in a place like Gaza, they're primarily Palestinians. And so Gazans probably, you know, have a range of views about, um, you know, the political situation. And there's probably varying degrees of support for Hamas, uh, for support for armed resistance to Israel, you know, some more moderates. And so, you know, this is not... Uh, you know, this is not a population that has, you know, particularly uh, warm um, sort of uh, sentiments towards 
towards the Israeli government, right, to start with. Uh, there have been allegations that um, Hamas has stored weapons in UNRWA facilities. Um, there's been some evidence of that. Um, often, um, you know, UNRWA has drawn attention to that to the Israeli authorities. There have been concerns about uh, the school curriculum that um, too many of the, that, that some of the texts are, are anti-Semitic. Um, uh, you know, UNRWA has tried to defend itself. The Secretary General came out recently and talked about how wonderful those schools were and compared them to going to school in Portugal when he was a boy. So there's a lot of politics around it. And there was an effort, um, particularly by, during the Trump administration, by Jared Kushner and Nikki Haley to essentially um, eliminate um, UNRWA to turn over all of its um, its, its responsibilities to another UN agency that didn't have the same political baggage, the UN Commission for um, Refugees. Um, that never happened. Um, there has been some talk, particularly among conservatives, about doing that. It's become a very hot issue among uh, Republicans on the campaign trail. Ron DeSantis has been calling for uh, a cutoff of all humanitarian aid to Gaza. Nikki Haley um, has also uh, like launched public attacks against UNRWA. Uh, Ted Cruz has, um, you know, has 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 also criticized UNRWA and, and has also sort of um, called for the resignation of the UN Secretary General. That's an unrelated issue, but um, but there's been a lot of um, a lot of uh, of, of kind of tough language directed at the UN these days, and particularly UNRWA. Yeah, and I think on the other side of the argument, you quoted Jeremy Conondike in the piece, who made an interesting point that, you know, if you don't have an UNRWA, you end up really putting the population in a situation where they have to rely more on Hamas or, you know, on whatever the other de facto authority is, as he puts it. And so, you know, be careful what you wish for, essentially. And, and you, you, you had you know, some others quoted in the piece talking about, you know, as much as there might be crit criticism of UNRWA today, in the end, you're going to need something like UNRWA, probably UNRWA itself, uh, you know, the day after the war. Um, and it may be an even more important institution than it is today. Um, I've also, you know, talked to some diplomats around the UN this week and trying to get a sense of what they're thinking about for the day after. Right. And and they really are kind of scratching their head. Um, you know, UNRWA, even if UNRWA maintains its position in a Hamas less Gaza, you know, who is going to provide security and, and how is that going to be addressed? So, you know, are there regional Arab countries that might play a role? Is there a role for a UN peacekeeping operation? I mean, they've been trying to get a peacekeeping operation in Haiti for, you know, the last year and a half and, you know, they have no subscribers. So I don't think there's going to be huge appetite for that. There could be a real you know, security vacuum in Gaza as well to go along with the with um, with you know sort of uh, you know a potential vacuum in terms of the delivery of basic services. UNRWA officials I've talked to have talked in terms of you know after you know the day after as having like an UNRWA plus sort of operation and the plus being some form of, of security and they don't know what that's going to be. And so, you know, everybody's beginning to kind of grapple with that. Yeah, well, it's a really key question. And I think your piece does a great job both explaining where it sits in the debate and what the potential is for its role the day after, um, which is, you know, hopefully sooner rather than later uh, for the civilian populations affected on both sides. So, Listen, I, I want to thank you for that story and recommend to everybody who's listening to, to have a look at that, as well as the other pieces we talked about 
weighted week in on the global development beat. There's always a lot happening. Um, and, and such a pleasure to get to speak to my two colleagues here today. Jen Cates, thank you so much for, for kind of helping to all is on in the complex world of global health where it interacts with U.S. policy. It was great to have you here. Thanks so much. Great to be here. Okay. Thanks, Rush. And, and Colin Lynch, thank you for being here as well. And uh, if you're listening into this, uh, join us again next week and subscribe to the DevX Newswire. This has been This Week in Global Development. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe using the link in the description. To get even more coverage and analysis on the most pressing development issues of the day, become a DevX Pro member by going to devx.com membership and signing up. Thank you for listening and see you next week.